This is IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. I'm your host, Lee Llewellyn. For many IEDA members, Steve Eberly is well known. He has been an IEDA member for many years when he served as Economic Development Director for Warren County, where he also simultaneously served as County Commissioner. Steve is an active farmer, but he was also with Purdue University for 35 years. But in his joint role as farmer, county commissioner, and IEDA member, uh, Steve was really instrumental in helping us launch and figure out the elements of the rural economic development model. Uh, So he brings a considerable amount of expertise and experience uh, to the topic that we're going to talk about today and and its impact on economic development. So uh, now, in his current role, Steve is serving as the executive director of Hoosiers for Renewables, and uh, that's what we're going to talk to Steve about today, is about his role and about Indiana's future for renewable energy. So, Steve, thanks for taking time to talk to me today. You bet, Lee, and I'm so very excited to uh, be able to speak to our membership today uh, about the opportunities that these renewable energy projects are bringing to Indiana. But first, uh, just a word or two about the Hoosiers for Renewables organization. They founded this back in late 2019. Um, Primary mission was to educate, broad-based education, particularly at at the sidewalk level, my term, about what opportunities renewable energy projects can bring to a county. We also uh, work with all of the developer community within the state and our utility partners to help uh, further the understanding of all the way from ordinance development through the process of other enabling agreements. So as to number one, let the public know what there is about all of these projects, but very significant to them what the economics of a renewables project can mean bringing millions of dollars to a community uh, with little or no impact on existing infrastructure. So it sounds as though then you provide sort of a variety of maybe wraparound services in terms of trying to assist communities in um, landing a project, helping to facilitate the development of the project. Is that correct? That is correct. And, and definitely from the public's perspective, I mean, soon we will have uh, some of the utility scale projects online, but currently the largest project for reference anyone in Indiana has would be the solar array at the Indianapolis airport. So there is quite a bit of education work to be done, just in the nuances of how these are constructed and how they work. Renewable energy is kind of a broad term. There are lots of different technologies that are uh, being experimented with. When you are talking about renewable energy projects that you're helping to facilitate or educate about, what are the primary renewable energy footprints that you're working with? Our primary primary, uh, playground currently is wind turbine energy, solar energy, and, and to a lesser extent, biogas. Uh, again, on the uh, utility scale side of things. In Indiana right now, solar is really at the forefront. There currently is a few projects. There's a project currently under construction over in Randolph County for wind, but definitely right now, solar is the ticket. A- again, 
solar and wind being driven primarily because they are so cost competitive with our traditional sources of generation. So I mentioned in the introduction that you have a varied background, that you uh, were a local elected official, you're a farmer, uh, and you served as economic development director. And I'd like to take each of those roles sort of in turn and talk about how they interact with the renewable energy platforms and sort of a perspective for each. And since our listeners are primarily economic developers, you know, let's start with, you know, your background as an economic developer. What do economic developers need to know about renewable energy and why do they need to know that? I think the first thing is, is to when, you know, your office gets word that land may be signing up, uh, farmers, landowners may be leasing property. We are strongly encouraged and are seeing good movement toward the direction that economic developer reach out to the contact that they can obtain regarding the developer and then meet with the developer, learn who they are, what their goals are. This has been difficult at, at times in that until a developer has enough land under lease to really focus upon the synergy of a project, there may not be enough to talk about. But I think. Truly, we, we have seen, based upon public reaction, based upon the relationships, the positive relationships that have evolved between developers and counties and the public, uh, awareness as soon as possible. So the economic developer needs to understand the credibility of the developer. We're not heavily into the resale side of things just yet, but we have heard of some that are out there now trying to lease land that's already been leased and they're leasing on behalf of someone else. So that, that's just a word of caution. And, and certainly our group, Hoosiers for Renewables, we work with the eight or 10 primary utility scale developers in the state. We're happy to act as an information resource. Beyond that, I think you have to understand and utilizing the resources of, uh, you know, larger scale accounting firms where if a project comes forward, the developer indicates, well, we're going to invest $200 million. What does $200 million mean from the, from the perspective of assessed valuation changes in the county, possible tax savings, and now very commonly related to an abatement request from a developer is the development of an economic development agreement. And Counties, the most successful ones that put together small committees uh, whereby they can evaluate evaluate the uh, opportunities within an economic development agreement, then use that as the cornerstone in terms of ultimate abatement language and other tenants of the financial deal. You talked about talked about the abatement, you talked about you know the economic development agreement. Are, do do we have the right tools in place in Indiana now to really fully support renewable energy? Are we are we behind other states? Are we ahead? Are we are we where we need to be? You know, and, and a year ago, I would have answered this question a little bit differently. Um, Indiana has been slow to start in renewables, but we just put together and celebrated the fact that there's some 46 new projects announced in the state, primarily solar in the last 12 months. So Indiana's working hard to catch up. We rank 14th in terms of wind generation in the United States, which is really good. 
but overall, when you look at the aggregated amount of renewable energy produced, we rank 36. Tying this back to the economic development perspective, our developers work, our economic developers at the county level work so hard to attract new business. And frankly, the large nameplates and even the large nameplates we have in the state, such as Cummins, Lilly, and others, uh, they want to be affiliated with counties that celebrate renewables projects. And so we need to keep going. Uh, we need to keep going and work toward a greater level of consistency, I think, as it relates to the uh, siting regulations, a greater level of consistency as it relates to the decommissioning agreements. The economic development agreements, there's some good benchmarks out there. Uh, and again, we have some reputable attorney firms and reputable accounting firms that can help the county look at it from the specific county's perspective. What do they need? What do they want from one of these uh, projects? But we are behind and we do need to continue to progress. So, so you said something else that caught my attention uh, when you were talking about being approached by the renewable energy companies. You talked also about credibility. And I would assume that as we're approaching this as a new technology, as a new opportunity, uh, determining the credibility of a company that is approaching a county to to put up a project, how how do we know, how do economic developers know that the company represents a credible opportunity? The first thing for folks to understand is why would a renewable why would a renewable company have an interest in your county? And the easiest way to understand that is to look up. So chances are if you have a primary distribution line or substation network within your county, there's going to be a developer that is at least surveying the opportunity to, to hook to that transmission line. Beyond that, research 101. How long have they been in the renewables arena? Where do they operate in the renewables arena? Have they been a long-term player in, in wind generation? Have they been a, a, a long-term player in solar? And in solar particularly, you know, in, in the West, on the West Coast, and the High Plains, there's installations out there, and frankly, also with wind that have been operating for years. But the nuances of operating in the Midwest, greater population density, we have different weather. And state by state, we have different policies as it relates to regulating these kind of projects. And so, I think it's a combination. I, I think certainly independent research is vital. I think now that we do have uh, operating on wind and near operating on solar, I think pick up the phone, talk to your peers, and just develop an understanding of what the experience was. It, it, it's pretty readily transparent out there that, uh, you know, if you look at the track record of a, of a given developer, say when they, they, they create a project, usually they name it. Uh, is there a web page related to a project? specific QA project. And, and our larger developers, those those that have good footing in the state right now, you're going to see that. You're going to see transparency. I, I grow weary of the conversations from some of those that would oppose such projects as saying these are secretive and non-transparent. They're subject to the standard public process. The county has zoning. They're subject to drainage plans. 
and really just basic through, through the web. If you look through the factual information, it's there. You touched upon then that public process. So let's shift focus just a little bit then to a different role that you played. Uh, and that is as a local elected official. And I think oftentimes local elected officials feel as though they get caught in the middle of uh, these conversations when there is an opportunity in their county or their community for a renewable energy project. You know, they, they may feel as though they don't have sort of the knowledge to be able to manage or to, well, to manage the process, to manage the questions. You know, credibility is a question. So how do you approach and what do you say to those local elected officials as they are trying to navigate the process of whether or not to permit and allow a renewable energy project? Well, I, I'll, I'll go back to what I stated a moment ago in terms of calling your peers. One of the biggest variables that we have faced really in the last 18 months is that each county approaches a development with different philosophies. Some do research, some, some do research, some look to uh, comments from their constituencies, but we see a lot of inconsistency in that regard. And also from the uh, clarity, from the transparency perspective, I'm pleased to report that very soon, within a matter of weeks, Purdue University, Purdue Community Extension is going to be releasing their work to inventory and analyze all of the solar and wind and ordinances in the state. And so, even though many ordinances have already been developed, I think the ability to see on a large scale, easy, easy to see format, uh, it, it will begin folks to understand that, for example, the average setback, the average setback for a solar project from a uh, roadway is about 300 foot. And so if you're a county that, uh, you know, you deviated substantially from those standards, you need to ask why and what, is, what was the logic employed. As that would progress into a meeting format, I can't stress enough that just basic civility, maintaining the order within these hearings. We have seen a lot of times when, particularly because of the service and disservice of the internet, facts and, and things that aren't factual are out there, and folks react to them, and, and, and they should. Hoosiers question things, and that's a good thing. But it can really, it can really result in some extended meetings, sometimes with a little more passion than, than probably was required. So I think civility is important. I think being able to put the nuts and bolts of a project in front of the public as specifically as possible is vital. And so if a developer is going to put a solar array proposed to in a county, how big is the project? Uh, how many acres of solar panels are going to be inside a federally required fence? What would the county like to see around these projects? Uh, what kind of shielding vegetation to, to make it become as much of a part of the natural landscape as possible. And these are the nuances of uh, the public process that I could, I think can help these meetings go forward smoothly. Uh, no, not everyone will be satisfied with outcomes, 
but I think county governments need to acknowledge they have a responsibility to their existing public. They have a responsibility to due process. And particularly with these projects that stretch out for 30 years, they have a responsibility to the future. They have a responsibility to make certain we're going to have power out there, affordable power, clean power, and economics that will support the basics inside a county. If you need to replace a bridge, the funds are there. If you need to expand broadband, the funds are there. Same way with education and fire. That's a windy answer, Lee, but having been in government 35 years, I guess I probably have been to quite a few hearings in my life. But, but it really is basics 101. They are accountable to the public, but they have a responsibility to, to the financial integrity of that county and to provide the services both today and future that the public expects. And uh, it's a hard role. It, it's a hard role when you sit there in that chair with two other commissioners or six other county council people. And that's why, you know, the long hearings, multiple sessions of these hearings, sometimes it's necessary. Well, and this touches a little bit maybe on something that, that we talked about earlier, but um, you referenced the, the, the notion that there is a lot of accessible information and there's a lot of accessible misinformation from an elected official standpoint or even from an economic developer standpoint. How do we, how, how do you counteract the misinformation about renewable energy and how do you know, again, what is credible information? I guess track record and credibility of source. Right now, there, there's an organization that they've been in, started in the Carolinas. The Carolinas have had a long history with renewables, but there's a, an organization in Huntington uh, called the Center for Energy Education, and it's C4EE. They put forward a lot of information relative to what is factual, what is not. Quite frankly, uh, my conversations uh, relative to Purdue University, you know, academic resources, IU and IU's Resiliency Institute as a wealth of information out there. Uh, on the economic side, uh, Dr. Michael Hicks has worked out there from about a year and a half ago, contrasting the cost reductions that have occurred in wind and solar, and frankly, that's why the utility companies are now looking toward those sources to not totally replace our traditional generation sources, but certainly to diversify the way power happens. So, and lastly, I would mention our organization, and I, I'm not big on tooting our own horn, but we do take a lot of effort uh, in trying to put up nothing but factual information vetted from university sources, uh, and the track record of the industry, to be frank. So I think we'll probably, uh, I'll pursue a couple of those um, opportunities that you talked about in organizations, maybe uh, for other podcasts, because I think we're always looking for those sources of information. So I'm glad you were able to touch upon that. Uh, so uh, moving on, when we talked about, again, sort of the roles that you have played, economic developer, local ec uh, elected official, uh, and then also farmer. And farmers, I think, are another group who sometimes get caught in the middle of these conversations about renewable energy. So what's the perspective from, for the ag community 
What do farmers need to know about this and, and how do economic developers work with farmers in this process? I'll start on one of the most difficult things that I know of for a farmer to do, which is try to explain to non-farmers what drives the farmer. And certainly in my own specific example, we're, we're very small by Indiana standards. I got 200 acres here. My grandchildren are six generations. I know personally what it's taken for me to keep this 200 acres within this family. When I was 12, 14 years old, I watched my grandfather, this farm was on the verge of being sold for taxes. My dad and I scrambled in every way possible to find economic resources to just pay the bills and get ourselves back current. Why? Because you know the legacy of our land and and definitely definitely the uh, the fervency to be able to keep it and pass it on to our next generation that's the easiest way i can say that so when opportunities such as this come and a farmer gets a call or it's knock on the door someone looking to lease their land currently the opportunity presented inside a lease is it, it can easily be two to three times what a farmer can net by operating their ground. The funds are guaranteed. If the project would, for whatever reason, not be there, there's a process whereby the decommissioning is guaranteed, whereby every stitch of steel wiring, it, it can either be removed, fully removed, or during installation, it'll be put where it's innocuous to the farmer post-construction. In terms of stewardship of the land and, and our farm, we have minor amounts of our land in what's called the USDA Conservation Reserve Program. So we're actually paid, paid a fee to rest the land, to put it in fallow, to restore some of the natural fertility, but also to prevent erosion. Uh, these projects by virtue of the vegetation plan that every county has is, is, is got that considers these projects and the farmer should participate in that conversation. What kind of grass is going to cover up the space between the panels? Uh, and again, combined with that ability to remove all of the hardware if the project goes or the project is done, the land is there for the farmer to use at the end of this. So, and the last thing, so it, it preserves it preserves, it protects. And then in terms of that legacy comment and passing it forward, it's guaranteed, it's guaranteed revenue. Uh, right now we're in an environment where in some cases, inexplicably, input costs to grow corn and beans have jumped 25, 30% over the last 15 months. Seems like they're even talking about it going higher. Uh, so your expenses are totally variable when you're operating the land. Um, in terms of the revenue, right now we're in $6 corn, $14 beans, we breathe a little bit of fresh air there, but it's not that long ago that corn was hovering down there around $3 and a half a bushel. And so it's, it's that variance that, that keeps folks up at night. Um, and we're not, we're not covering up every acre of, of land in Indiana with these projects. The, the uh, the aggregate total of, of a project inside a county, oftentimes it ends up being less than 2% of the land inside a county. Um, and so there's still going to be ample land available for food and feed production. 
Um, so as a farmer, it, it really looks like just another example of diversifying their revenue, maybe bringing in enough money that if they did need to upgrade their equipment, they could do so, and stability, stability and confidence. Long-winded answer again. No, but I'm sure that that uh, many people outside of the agriculture community really don't understand the economics of farming. Uh, they look at the large machinery. They look at all of the apparatus that is associated with farming. And I think there's an assumption that farmers have lots of money, lots of resources, because they obviously can afford, in theory, uh, the large machinery. Uh, and so I think there's there's always some question about, you know, why do farmers need to do anything like this with renewable energy? I just think there's probably a lot of misinformation in terms of exactly the economics of farming and farming as a business. Um, and and I think the other thing that's that seems to me that's on the horizon for many Hoosier farmers, especially if they're uh, corn farmers, uh, is the amount of corn that is now devoted to ethanol and what is the impact down the road as we move toward electric vehicles and there is going to be less gas consumption. So I think there's just a misunderstanding or misinformation about really the economics of farming and and how uh, marginal sometimes those profit uh, margins can be. Absolutely, well said. So so let's uh, let's move on a little bit. I think you've talked somewhat about you've talked about your role a little bit with Hoosiers for Renewables, but. Uh, Talk again a little bit, maybe in a little bit more detail from from an economic developer standpoint or a local elected official. What can they turn to you, to to you and your organization for assistance with? What kind of service or support do you provide for a county or a community that is considering a renewable energy project? Our experience and in inventory of counties that have successfully progressed with these projects and that can be as simple as sharing the name of the president of a county council and one-on-one -on -one let let the county with the questions talk to other people on the ground and that's repetitive I've, I've said that already but really we have gathered quite a bit of experience here since late 2019 uh, ordinance development, we, we were substantially involved with ordinance development uh, during 2021. Many of those are now in place, but I think now as more projects evolve, I think there's going to be a lot of, this is my opinion only, but I think there's going to be a lot of conversations in modifying some ordinances that were constructed to be restrictive. I think the Purdue work is going to illustrate that as well. but. Certainly, our resource that way, uh, just from the background perspective, we are continually looking at uh, trying to find and advocate for domestic production of the supply chain items needed to go into these projects. Where do the panels come from? What's in them? Again, trying to go back to credible sources on our end and then replaying that back. Attending hearings. Uh, and sharing our experiences 
speaking with myself to share the experiences of what it's what it's like to see some economic stability and back to you as a landowner and looking to the future there there's an evolving conversation about carbon carbon sequestration carbon credits what does a farmer get paid for this and this is not an area where we are source experts at this time but certainly we are mindful uh, of those conversations and trying to participate in in fact-finding uh, fact-finding work so that we can become more knowledgeable about that climate change how a few years ago people just categorically rejected climate change and i know now there's uh there's three bills up in, in in the general assembly at least acknowledging climate change purdue has the center for climate change now and they're trying to integrate that into ag so really for us to become a, a continue to be a part of the biggest conversation which is how are we going to get the energy enough energy and energy that's compatible with with our overarching goals of keeping this world the way we want it to be there, there's a lot to it that way but uh, certainly we want to be there and that's why we participate in the uh, face-to-face meetings as well as pretty robust presence out there on social media. So from a local economic developer standpoint, you know, I think you've talked about, uh, you've the way you've talked about it is that a renewable energy company may come to the county. You know, is it a waiting game or are there things that local economic developers can do to increase the odds that there's going to be a a renewable energy project in the county? Are there things that the local stakeholders and leaders can and should be doing to create an optimal situation for a renewable energy project? project what what's the action steps that a local that the local leaders can take to try to increase the odds that they will get a project there, there, there's two things there and the first thing is the term waiting and no i've never and not today an advocate of saying we'll wait until some moment where we feel it's appropriate to contact the developer i think it's it, it's appropriate to contact the developer at the earliest notion that you've heard something that alone can increase the odds of, of at least from the developer's perspective awareness now the other side of that road is just as with any other industrial lead there's a time when that is ready for prime time in the public uh, and there's a time where it is still conceptual or or could be lost could be tentative and that's where the expertise of that local developer comes into play, whereby you know they're partners within government. At what point do you engage them? Uh, strategically as soon as possible would be my answer. And then as things evolve, and let's say there is enough land under lease for synergy of a project, then some process for the public. Uh, our organization and what do we do? We attempt to just be out there with general information about the renewable sector so that when someone first hears oh there could be a solar project in this county we really don't want folks to have to at least as best we can inform them we don't want them to have to ask what is a solar panel uh what happens with a solar panel Um, 
Does the solar panel change the drainage water? What does it leach out? Nothing. Uh, will the farmer's drainage be ruined? No. The county has the drainage plan in place. And so th this whole information process is key that the very initial steps start as soon as possible. As soon as possible. If a developer, if a developer does not return phone calls, find the landowner that they signed up and then work with him as well and get that call returned uh, so that you can get yourself in there on the ground floor. So, and then you said that Purdue is going to be doing or releasing an inventory of ordinances um, to be prepared. Then should a county, I mean, is there a, is there a best practice in terms of ordinances or, or standards that are, that are more conducive than others? How are, how is land use plan and zoning? I mean, what are those elements that a, that a county can be doing to make sure that they are ready for that renewable energy project? Should it, should it show up or as they're courting it, how can they be optimally prepared to try to attract that project? I think the inventory project, and, and I'm, I'm going to expand on that in just a second here, but the inventory project, its core intention was simply to correlate so that if, if you're a county that you're new to the game, you can easily access this through the web page at Purdue. Here's the average setbacks. So here's two counties that seem to be very successful with renewables. Look up their ordinance, contrast that with what the average setbacks are as an example, or the or the language within the vegetation plan, and then choose if that's going to be a fit for your county. So the factual information will be there in the form of the ordinance. The track record will be there in terms of they've endured the construction process. They, they may be operating or on the verge of operating, and then correlate, correlate that back to your personal situation inside your own county. That, that was our original base goal for the Purdue work. Coupled with that, it will, that it will become a renewable energy website for the state housed within community extension Purdue University. So as new information comes forward, other best practice information comes forward, we want to put that up on, the, on those pages as well so that people can see and understand them. But I think right now there, there's been misunderstandings in terms of you know, what, what is a successful setback matrix how do you deal with residential landowners in that area? How do you deal with vegetation plans so that these projects do fit in with the goals of the county? And that's where I, I think the Purdue work is going to be instrumental in furthering the success of more projects. So is that being developed? Which entity in, within Purdue is doing that? Is that uh, extension or, or, or who is doing that within Purdue? It, it, it's within Purdue University Extension Community Development. Obviously, it, it crosses over, you know, into the PCRD realm of the world uh, as well, the Purdue Center for uh, Rural Development. But, but specifically, it will be at Purdue Extension. Okay, that's helpful. Steve, this has been uh, very informative and very helpful and something we're all trying to sort of learn our way through. Uh, is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you think is critical before we close? 
you know, I, I think, and because of the number of projects that are announced right now, we have to keep in mind that there's no way 100% of those projects are going to be approved. If a developer, if, this, if the energy development company cannot attain a power purchase agreement from a given utility company, the project will not go forward. The county may decide, no, it's not a good fit. It will not go forward. I think it's easy to make the jump and assume that we're going to cover up the state of Indiana with solar farms, or we're going to populate the horizon with wind turbines. We have to keep in mind that we have only so much distribution capacity, both inside the state and regionally. And that in and of itself will determine the magnitude and number of, of these projects. So, you know, I, I don't feel, nor do I have any sense that there are any goals in this state to fully replace coal, natural gas, smaller, smaller amount nuclear. This just diversifies our power. But uh, certainly folks just need to continue to educate themselves about this and they need to provide constructive feedback county leadership in terms of, well, yeah, what what is this going to do for us economically? But I mean, in the biggest sense, what's going to do to keep the lights on? What's it going to do to provide the aggregate demand that right now, politically and otherwise, it seems that everyone wants more and more and more electric power. And this is, this right now is, is the biggest and the best that we have in terms of offering diversification, uh, stabilizing supply, hopefully in, in a balanced economic, in a balanced and economic way, in the cost of power. Steve, I thank you for your time. Uh, it's always been it's always very informative when I get to spend time with you and and get a sense of of what you're doing. So I appreciate your time. Happy to help, Lee. You, you all have a, have a good day and, and good luck to all of us here as we navigate navigate these. these quantum changes. So I've been talking today to Steve Eberle. Uh, Steve, uh, in his current role, is the executive director of Hoosiers for Renewables. Uh, He's been talking to me about the the work that he does with that organization and then also sort of the current state of renewable energy within Indiana. And as always, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Have a good day. You've been listening to IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. This podcast is copyright 2022 by the Indiana Economic Development Association, all rights reserved.